0: So tonight we continue working our way through the book of Joshua. And you will recall last week we studied chapter 9 on the Gibeonite deception. So these were some guys who lived very close. But they put on some old clothes and took some moldy bread. Came up with this master plan to trick the Israelites. And lo and behold it worked. The Israelites were pretty naive and basically accepted this little ruse as being what it was represented to be. And entered into a covenant with these Gibeonites. Though God had actually commanded them not to make a covenant with any of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. So Joshua chapter 9 ended with the Israelites having entered into a covenant with the Gibeonites. And then coming to realize that lo and behold the Gibeonites had tricked them. Now... Chapter 10 picks up from there. As soon as Adonai Zedek heard about all this. So he heard about how Jericho had fallen and then Ai had fallen. And now one of the major cities in the region, Gibeon, had made peace with the people of Israel. Had entered into some kind of an alliance with the people of Israel. So perhaps he thought... As is sort of conventional wisdom, if a fight is inevitable, strike first and strike hard. And he thought, well, let's strike a blow against Gibeon before this fight comes to our doorstep. Better to besiege than to be besieged. And so he gets all of the kings together to go besiege Gibeon. Or perhaps he thought, let us make an example of Gibeon and let us show the rest of the land of Canaan that it actually is not advantageous to make peace with Israel, because we're going to, we, your neighbors from cities and towns around, are going to make you pay for defecting on the rest of your Canaanite neighbors and the Canaanite gods. And perhaps he thought, let's go straight Gibeon to make an example of them, so no one else will grow faint-hearted and weak-kneed and enter into an alliance with Israel. Whatever his motivation, probably one or the other, or perhaps a bit of both. Basically, he marshals these other kings, and they go to war against Gibeon. And Gibeon appeals for help to their new allies. Send a message to the people of Israel. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. Do not relax your hand from your servants. I don't know the exact terms of the covenant. But I tell you, I would be, if I was Joshua, I would be looking for loopholes. Because I would be saying, Man, these guys came and tricked us. Right? We're not putting our hands down. Right? If if the covenant allowed at all for me not to lead my armies to go rescue these guys who had shown themselves to be pretty wily pretty deceptive and pretty untrustworthy i would say listen this is out of my hands this is the providence of god against these guys they're getting what they deserve for their deception and for their treachery if i had made the promise as i said last week blessed in the sight of god are those who swear to their own hurt and yet do not change their mind if the covenant absolutely stipulated you have to come to military aid of these Gibeonites, then I would say, well, we have to do it because we made a promise. But I'd be honest, I'd be, I'd be thinking back on the terms and thinking to myself, man, this is the Lord's hand. This is the Lord's doing. We haven't put our hand against these Gibeonites. We haven't put our dagger to their throat. This is someone else now coming in, dealing with the Gibeonites. And I guess it's God's will to punish them for their deception. Just being honest, I'm not saying that's the right thing. And in fact, as we go on, it will become clear that's the wrong thing. But that, that's probably the way I would think. It'd be like if you were deceived sort of on an individual level, someone came and tricked you and ripped you off and you know, perhaps pretended that they were in some need and you sacrificially gave them some money and then lo and behold, you find that you were taken and that they had just tricked you and deceived you. And then someone else comes and beats them up. <laughs> you think to yourself, well, this is the Lord's doing, it, right? Like, who am I to, you know, protect them from, right? This is, this is the way I'm just saying I would probably think. And in fact, when I, when I read through this in my devotions year over year, I often think to myself, maybe that's the way the story should have gone. You know, how it, again, I'm not saying that's right, but sometimes this is the way we read the Bible, right? We sort of, we're uncomfortable with stuff in this. But as I was considering it more deeply in preparation to preach and not just, not just sort of in passing, as I was, um, you know, working through it amidst, working through other stuff devotionally year over year, as I was considering it more deeply this week, I had actually a very profound realization, which we will come to. But let me just just say this, Joshua, at the very least, is a better man than me because what happens here is he gets this message and it says, so Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor, Joshua chapter 10 and verse 7. There's no record of deliberation, there's no record of hesitation, hemming and hawing, looking for loopholes. And again, this might be simply because the covenant stipulated it and they were actually obligated, so they just went. But it seems that there was no reticence. There was no hesitation to go. There was no begrudging going. They just went. And they weren't. it doesn't say that they, they grumbled on the way. It's just like they just went to go rescue these Gibeonites. On a natural level... I just want to point out that these people of Israel really kept the spirit of the covenant with the Gibeonites, whatever the particular stipulations were. They actually took them as allies and didn't even bother to try to exploit loopholes, if in fact there were any. They made a promise, the, the sense of which clearly and obviously was to basically be allies to each other. And then they took that promise very seriously when the time came to step up and go to war on behalf of their allies. This is commendable, as I mentioned to you last week, and we also likewise ought to swear to our own hurt. Well, I should say this, we ought to, if we have sworn something, and it proves to be to our own hurt, then we ought not to change our mind, but we ought to follow through on the things that we've promised. Naturally, on the natural plane, that's what's going on in this story. The people of Israel keep their promise and they come and they rescue the Gibeonites from the hand of all these kings that come against Gibeon. But clearly, there is a supernatural element to this story. It says in verse 8 that the Lord told Joshua that he had given these people into Joshua's hands. The Lord is active in this story. We're not merely left to understand what happened here as the natural cause and effect of war between men. But the Lord is active here. It says in verse 10, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, which is similar to what we read in other sections of the scripture where there seems to be Psychological warfare on the Lord's part. I think, for example, of the Midianites when Gideon goes to attack them and the Lord throws them into a, a panic, and other stories where there seems to be this supernatural psychological distress that comes upon the enemies of God's people. Something like that happens here. And then it says, as they fled before Israel in verse 11, the Lord threw down large stones. From heaven on them. And in fact, more died because of these stones, which verse 11 tells us were hailstones. More died from the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So the Lord causes psychological distress and the Lord sends hailstones which kill a bunch of them. And then we also read that the sun stood still and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. And whether that's 12 hours in terms of the daylight hours being called a day, or whether that's 24 hours in terms of the whole cycle being called a day, either way it's obviously miraculous. If the sun normally would set at say 6 p.m. and it didn't set till 6 a.m. and the whole cycle was disrupted, or if the sun normally sets at 6 p.m. but it didn't set till 6 p.m. the next day, Again, either way, it doesn't really matter how we take that. That's clearly a miraculous disruption of the ordinary orbit of the earth. Nothing less than that is what the Bible tells us happened to. So the Lord causes psychological distress, throws down hailstones, and then stops the earth's orbit. Presumably. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know actually the mechanics of how he did it. Presumably the Lord stopped the earth's orbit. And just held it still. But I, I, I would endure being corrected on this point. If someone else knows more accurately than I the manner in which the Lord did this. But listen here. Opponents of Christianity will say, Shh, this is nonsense. Right? If the earth were to cease orbiting around the sun... You know this would this would happen that would happen most likely I, I don't know I'm not a physicist so I don't really know what would happen I'm, I'm happy to just take it in a childlike way and be like well that's what the Lord did but opponents might say this could this is not physically possible. this is not reasonable this is not rational that this happened it's not doesn't it' not doesn't make sense to believe it It's not scientifically Possible for the earth to stop orbiting for about a whole day. But listen here, as, as many people have noted, if the first verse of the Bible is true, nothing that follows is irrational to accept. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, if you get over that verse, and you accept it, Nothing that follows should strike you as being irrational or unreasonable to believe. If it is in fact true that God is the creator, he who spoke everything into being certainly can overcome the very laws that he wrote into the natural world and supersede them and transcend them and overrule them at his good pleasure. Now, he doesn't do that every day, does he? Which is why we can look on the weather network and find out what time the sun's going to rise tomorrow and what time it's going to go down. The laws of nature are generally consistent. We don't say, well, we don't really know what time the sun goes. If people are coming to visit Barbados and stay with me and my wife and my sons in our house, and they say, you know, what's it like there? What time does the sun rise? What time does the sun set? I don't say, well, there is, no, there is no normal time because sometimes the Lord makes it go down at this time, sometimes that time. We just don't know what the Lord will do. We do acknowledge, God willing, we expect this or that to happen because everything obviously is just subject to God's will. But we also recognize that there is consistency built into the laws of nature, including sunrise and sunset, as well as all other natural laws. But I just want to make the point, sorry, let me say, so therefore it is noteworthy that this happened and is recorded for us in the text. If this happened every day, it wouldn't be something surprising or noteworthy to record. So while we acknowledge that there is such a thing as miracles and there is such a thing as God overruling the laws of nature, we also recognize that they are the exception rather than the norm, which is what makes them miraculous and not standard or to be expected. So I mentioned this point just to just to give us... I just mentioned this point sort of in passing, it's not the main point of tonight, but the idea that this this story is ludicrous and irrational to believe because it is supernatural really is not a good criticism. And as we're interacting and discussing the plausibility of the Christian faith with others, what we really have to press them on is if you accept the presupposition that God created the heavens and the earth, then nothing that follows in the pages of Scripture is hard to believe. And it is rather a functional atheism to deny supernaturalism altogether. In principle, a priority. All right. So that's what's that's what's kind of that's what's going on in this text. That's this is what's presented to us. As I was meditating on the text this week, I was thinking about what is the central theological idea here. Why is this text here other than simply as a point of interest to tell us that something supernatural happened, which is interesting to read. It's fascinating to know that the sun didn't set for a day and that God sent down hailstones, and it's just a a point of interest. But beyond that, is there anything here? Well, again, who may ascend to God's holy hill Those who swear to their own hurt do not change their mind. That's a continuation of that idea from Joshua chapter 9. But again, is that the main theological idea here that's happening in this passage? And as as I was meditating on it, I thought that the best way to understand and to explain this passage... Theolo- in terms of its theological significance is to think from the perspective of the Gibeonite. Think about this passage and the events contained therein, from the perspective of a Gibeonite. Remember last Sunday night when we were looking at Joshua chapter nine, I stressed the point that the Gibeonites really didn 't have to resort to deception that the Lord when When Rahab simply threw herself on the mercy of the God of Israel, the Lord didn't balk at accepting Rahab. Even though the Lord had given carte blanche license, and in fact even command to the Israelites to kill every man, woman, boy, and child in Canaan, it's obvious from the example of Rahab that the Lord was willing to make exceptions. For those who would defect from their gods and their countrymen and their kinsmen and their previous alliances and would throw themselves upon the mercy of God, God would be willing to accept them. So we we I belabored the point last week in Joshua chapter nine that the Israelites pardon me, that the Gibeonites really didn't have to resort to deception. They could have just came and said, listen, we want to we want to be the people of Yahweh we want you to accept us let us let us become Israelites as Rahab became an Israelite let us become Israelites as the mixed multitude who came up out of Egypt became Israelites. let us be grafted in as it were and be numbered among your people. the Lord would have been willing to accept them. the heart of God is. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But of course the Gibeonites didn't know that. So they did this little ruse. And they got accepted by the Israelites on false pretenses. Now, when these other kings came to surround Gibeon, I think the Gibeonites likely would have felt anxious and nervous that the people of Israel and Joshua, their leader, might be like John Ritter's and be like, nah, 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 <laughs> we're not coming. Right? You, you made your bed, now you've got to lie in it. You dug yourself a hole, you fell in it. We're not raising our hand against you, but neither are we risking life and limb to rescue you. This is your own problem. This is the judgment of God. So they sent this message, which of course any reasonable people would do. Call for any allies you can. But if, if you were the average Gibeonite, you probably wouldn't be like, Oh, don't worry about this. The Israelites will definitely come. You'd probably actually be like, I don't know if they will come. But we have to ask. Again, this would be like if you went and deceived someone and fraudulently got money from them and then as you're walking away from them, someone attacks you and then you call out to the person you just defrauded to come help you. Right? There would be a reasonable grounds to say the Israelites may not come. So consider the relief that you would experience when, after marching all night, or I shouldn't say all night because it probably didn't take them all night. After marching in the night, it was probably a distance apparently of around six to ten miles, which could be easily covered in a night. So, after marching in the night, imagine the relief the Gibeonites nice would feel when, unexpectedly, to the armies that had besieged Gibeon as well as, perhaps unexpectedly, to the Gibeonites themselves, boom, over the hill comes this army that had conquered Jericho and had conquered Ai. And here they come to your defense. Imagine what that would tell you about the integrity and the kindness, the honor, the loyalty, the, dare I say, love of the people of Israel, the care at least, of the people of Israel for the people of Gibeon. You would feel like, wow, we actually do have real allies in Israel. And that would be itself, that would be powerful. That would be a powerful testimony of the kind of people that the Israelites were and the kind of God that the Israelites God is. In that the kind of people that a people group tends to be relates very much, in fact, to who their gods are. And so when the Israelites marched in the night and came in the morning by surprise to rescue Gibeon, the Gibeonites probably would have really gained or increased their esteem for Israel and most likely for Israel's God and felt a good deal. Of relief but listen here this story goes so far above and beyond that as the fighting breaks out remember Yahweh causes psychological distress to these allied kings in chapter 10 and verse 10 it says the Lord threw them into a panic Something unnatural happens here. Something supernatural happens here. These men of war start panicking. These were not little 14-year-old plowboys who had been thrust into a war with no experience, without the psychological maturity to be able to go and deal with stuff like that merely out of necessity, the way that toward the end of World War II, young boys were being sent into the fighting on both sides simply because there was such a need. These allied kings and their armies were men of war. And if there's one thing men of war don't do, is panic. But the Lord sent them into a panic. Moreover, the Lord, Yahweh, started throwing down hailstones upon these armies and if you might have some sort of rational naturalistic explanation for the psychological distress you would have no rational naturalistic explanation for the hailstones coming down from heaven in the particular place and time that they came down and hitting Only a certain set of people. That's clearly a supernatural act. And then on top of that, at the normal time of sunset, it's like midday. And the sun's not even going down to give these guys cover. They can't even go run and hide in the bushes, in the shadows, because the Lord makes the sun not set. And so... The nation of Israel is able to take vengeance on their enemies, not only because the nation of Israel is fighting against them, but because Yahweh himself is fighting against them. So consider this story from the perspective of a Gibeonite. Here you are, this deceiver, Here you are, this trickster, this fraud. You and your people have deceived the Israelites by a ruse and entered into an alliance with them on false pretense. You get surrounded and you send out a message, but you're not even sure if the allies, your new allies, are going to come or not. You could understand if they didn't because the whole premise of your covenant was fraudulent. But in the morning, by surprise, they show up over the hill to fight for you. And not only do they show up over the hill to fight for you, but their God shows up over the hill to fight for you. If you were a Gibeonite, would you not think, I have never seen people like this. And I have never seen a God like this. Consider that it is their very own countrymen who are turning against them in this passage. It's the people from the surrounding cities who turn against the Gibeonites. Clearly, the honor, the loyalty, the care of the Israelites. For Gibeon. Surpasses. The honor and the care. And the loyalty of the Canaanites. For their fellow Canaanites. So the Gibeonites were think We have never seen people like this. But more than that. Surely as. Yahweh began to fight for the Gibeonites. They would say. We have never seen a God like this. Our God's. Cannot stand before Yahweh. Their gods didn't help Jericho. Their gods didn't help Ai. And in fact they had given up hope that their gods would save Gibeon. Implicitly that must be the case because they went to seek peace with Israel. So they weren't very confident in their gods. Their gods like the rest of the gods in the world, were gods that they imagined to give them what they deserve, what they had merited, or at least give them according to whatever favor they had curried by their sacrifices and by their ceremonies, and so on and so forth. But here's a god, Yahweh, giving to the Gibeonites, Not only what they do not deserve, but the actually the opposite of what they have earned. As these fraudsters are defended and protected and fought for by Yahweh. This surely, this passage surely tells us of the kindness of the Israelites to Gibeah. But moreover, it tells us about the kindness of Yahweh to give you. Romans chapter 2 verse four says, "Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance?" Here we have in this passage, I think, the kindness of God to the Gibeonites meant to lead them to repentance. They did not know before they went and worked the ruse that the heart of Yahweh would have been willing to accept that. So God has to change their thinking. God has to change their mind. God has to show them the kind of God He is. And the willingness that he, that he has to spread his wings over the Gibeonites. So the Gibeonites in chapter 9 think to themselves, Yahweh probably won't be willing to spread his wings over us. So we've got to enter into this alliance by trickery. But by the middle of chapter 10, I think the Gibeonites have realized, Wow, Yahweh has spread his wings over us. He's willing to fight for us and to protect us. Even though we have been deceptive, even though we have not acted in good faith, look at the kindness of Yahweh. And it's not recorded for us in Scripture, but I suspect that a good many of the Gibeonites probably began to trust in Yahweh then and there. As it's not recorded for us in Scripture that during the Ten Plagues narratives, Narrative Many of the Egyptians came to trust in Yahweh. But we read when the people came out, there was a mixed multitude with them. As God bears his mighty right arm in Egypt, there are Egyptians watching and learning who Yahweh is who come to faith. As God bears his mighty right arm in Canaan, no doubt the same is true. That there are Canaanites who are watching and learning who Yahweh is and come to faith this passage is a continuation Joshua 10 is a continuation from Joshua 9 in which we're considering the heart of God willingness to receive his willingness to be kind to be merciful and so on and so forth Myself need to be more God-like in that respect, Christ-like in that respect. Not looking for loopholes that I can use to wiggle my way out from loving my enemies, and I have to be more willing to love my enemies. Pray for those who persecute me. To repay evil with good. I think we could all do likewise. What we see very clearly in this passage is that God is not a God who's trying to exploit loopholes in order to wiggle out from the responsibility to do good to the undeserving. God is not that kind of God. God is the kind of God who tells us that He will be an ally to us. That He will enter into covenant with us. God is the kind of God who will not, who will honor the spirit of that alliance and that covenant. And He will truly rescue, He will truly save, He will truly fight for us, rather than use our infidelity, our undeservedness. In order to excuse himself from what he has covenanted to do, this has great evangelistic import. As we share the gospel or as we hear the gospel, we must be sure. That Jesus is seen as one who, when he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, really means it. As one who, when he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, he really means it. As one who, when he says, I will never leave you, nor forsake you, really means it. As we share the gospel, we present to people their sin, the judgment of God bearing down upon them, as the judgment of God was bearing down upon the Canaanites. But even as Rahab found mercy at the 11th hour, likewise, we can proclaim a mercy that even yet, if you will throw yourself on the mercy of Yahweh, surely He will have you. But he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Throughout Scripture, He is always He who never casts out those who come to Him. We can proclaim that. And if you're hearing the Gospel, thinking about the Gospel, you need to think of God not as one who enters into covenant with you and into an alliance with you in such a spirit that he's ready to bail at the first hint of undeservedness and unfaithfulness on your part but rather that when he enters into covenant with you and becomes an ally to you he enters into that in good faith the spirit of that alliance to take care of you To really help you, to really persist in faithfulness to you in spite of your undeservedness. God's not looking for a loophole to disqualify you from the benefits of His covenant. So evangelistically this has great import, but this also has great import as we consider the idea of assurance of faith. If God is not the kind of God that is looking for loopholes to excuse himself from giving you the benefits of the covenant, that has great bearing on our assurance. When we read in the scriptures, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink repent for the kingdom of God is at hand we shouldn't read those things skeptically the way we might pore over a contract that is presented to us with a fine tooth comb as it were the magnifying glass making sure we read all the small print because the one who presents it to us might be in some way trying to deceive us. Rather, We need to just hear these things. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We need to realize that these are the promises of one who is most willing to save. Most willing to be an ally to those who need it. One who is most willing to do good to the undeserving. One who knows that you are not faithful, that you are not good, that you have not merited his alliance, his covenant, and yet offers anyway to be in covenant with you. We should see in this passage God raining down hailstones to protect the fraudulent. We should see God causing the sun not to set on behalf of the deceivers. And that should inform the way that God deals with us when we sincerely believe. And when we're sincerely trying to walk with Him. We sin. We know we have sin. The Bible says we have sin. If anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar and he makes God a liar. Right? We, we, our faith often struggles. Like the, the man who came to Jesus, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Right? We struggle in our repentance. We struggle in our faith. But God knows that. And he entered into alliance and into covenant with us. Not expecting that we would be perfect in our repentance and perfect in our faith. And not looking to disqualify us on the basis of a loophole. But rather he is the God who is willing to spread his wings over not only Rahab but even the Gibeonites. And he's at pains, I think, in this section of Joshua to show us that he's that kind of God. And if even the Gibeonites could find this mercy, this covenant faithfulness from God, how much more would we we who honestly see our sin consciously avail ourselves of the mercy of God, throw ourselves on Him like He's our only hope, If God is willing to fight for the Gibeonites, is He not going to fight for His new covenant people who have trusted in Jesus, who are clinging to Jesus as their only hope? God's not going to, on judgment day, excuse Himself from faithfulness to His covenant on the basis of a loophole. God is going to fight for all who have come to faith in Christ Jesus as he fought for the Gibeonites here. And he's going to be faithful to the covenant promises and alliances that he has made with us. So if you're outside of Christ, come to Christ. If you're in Christ, but struggling with assurance, see here a God who is utterly faithful, who is benevolent, who's not looking to get out of his covenantal commitments on a loophole. And if you're evangelizing, be sure that you portray God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a God who's not stingy and reluctant with grace, always looking to disqualify people who don't believe well enough, don't repent well enough. Call people to faith and repentance, of course, but put the emphasis on the fact that we are saved by God's mercy and His covenant faithfulness as opposed to the quality of our faith and our repentance.